Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. Has your life turned out exactly as you planned? Does the face you show the world reflect the truth of who you are? Join us for the message, Why Am I Not Where I Want to Be? Welcome everyone to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I want to ask a question, a couple of questions. Has your life turned out exactly as you planned? (laughs) And does the face that you show the world reflect the truth of who you are? Our message today is going to be, why am I not where I want to be? So stay tuned for that. Now, if you've not done so already, I would... um, invite you to make a contribution to the ministry of this church, and you can do that through a variety of ways. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our church center app. Of course, you can always write a check or put cash in our communion plate, and we'd be deeply appreciative. And now I'll share with you the scripture this week from the books of Genesis and Luke. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and 26 through 31. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God who created them. Male and female, he created them. So God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And now from Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw began to grumble and said, 
He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of God for the people of God. If you are like me, which can be a good or a bad thing depending on the circumstance, but if you're like me, you may have very mixed feelings about social media. Now, it allows me to stay connected with people with whom I otherwise would have probably lost contact. I learn things about people um, that I may not know that well. And the posts of my family and close friends give me un unexpected insights even into the lives of people that I think I know very well. And no doubt it can be very entertaining. There seems to be absolutely no end to the number of cat videos available. <laughs> which is my personal favorite for wasting time. Yet we're also very much aware that our posts tend to reflect only a limited view of our lives. Sometimes, sometimes we may post about something that is troubling us, but most of our posts show only a very selective window into our lives, usually only exhibiting our best moments. Likewise, I think this modern phenomenon of online profiles is, I think, a fascinating sociological experiment. These are people who are truly putting their best foot forward, trying to present the most highly polished version of themselves that they can possibly muster. And I think some of these profiles, no doubt, are so polished that they can be downright deceptive. Here's an example of one. Strikingly beautiful, Ivy League graduate, playful, passionate, perceptive, elegant, bright, articulate, original in mind, unique in spirit. I possess a rare balance of beauty and depth, sophistication and earthiness, seriousness and a love of fun. Professionally successful, perfectly capable of being self-sufficient, please reply with substantial description of your background and who you are. Photo essential. There's nothing wrong with this woman's ego. Here's another one. Lazy, spoiled, insensitive, irresponsible, insecure, and desperate single white male. I hate art, travel, reading, and exercise. I like tuna castle rolls, miniature golf, and tattoos. Love sitting, sleeping, drinking beer, and watching nature films on TV. You are a single white female, former cheerleader with amnesia, earning $100,000 a year from a trust fund and would enjoy romantic evenings doing my laundry and cleaning my house. I give him kudos for being very honest. Much more honest than the woman in the first description. Well, we human beings, we're always trying to wear the most attractive mask that we can find, whether it's on social media or on a personal profile or resume. I can tell you we try to do this as, as pastors whenever we come to a new seating at a new church. We're definitely putting our best foots forward. The thing is, for most of us, our masks are, are based upon honest, tr positive let me say, start that over. The thing is that for most of us, 
our mask is based upon positive attributes that we might actually and honestly possess. There is usually some truth to the perception that we project out to the world. But we also know there's a lot that we are hiding. All of us harbor parts of ourselves that are not particularly attractive. We know in our hearts that in many ways we're not the people that we claim to be, nor are we the people that we want to be. Our lives as they are now, they're not where we wanted them to be. Some of our lives may be only a little off of where we expected to be, and others of us are far from the mark of whatever our original expectations for life were. But, whether, but this can be a good or a bad thing or a combination of both. The thing is, is all of us are very complex and messy mixtures of positive and negative traits. As Jewish rabbis would say, we possess both an impulse for good and an impulse for evil. We seem incapable of escaping the influence of either impulse. These impulses just seem to be part of the human condition. And we see both impulses at work in the story of Zacchaeus. Most of us are familiar with the children's song about Zacchaeus. My mother taught it to me when she was the teacher of the four-year-old Sunday school class in the church where I grew up. And children can certainly relate to not being tall enough to see over the heads of others. Now, right at the beginning of the story of Zacchaeus, we're told two very pertinent facts about Zacchaeus. This first pertinent fact is that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector in Jericho, and as a result, he's going to be very wealthy. The ancient Romans devised a taxation system that was just about guaranteed to bring conflict within a local population. You see, Rome required a certain amount of taxes, and the tax collectors were charged with collecting that tax. But then they were given the freedom to charge the people whatever else the tax collectors decided or thought they could get away with. So after paying the Romans the required amount of tax, the tax collector kept the surplus for himself, and most grew very wealthy at the expense of their fellow citizens, and the people considered them to be collaborators with their Roman occupiers. Now, as chief tax collector, Zacchaeus acted as a middleman between those who collected the tax directly from the people and the Roman officials. And Jericho, by the way, was also a major stop on the trade routes in that area. Zacchaeus would have had or would have received a cut on every single transaction in Jericho, therefore resulting in great, great wealth. So pertinent fact number one, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Second pertinent fact was that Zacchaeus was short. In fact, I almost named this sermon Zacchaeus, a short story. In one film adaptation, Zacchaeus is played by the actor Danny DeVito. Now, we're not told why Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus so badly. Maybe he was just curious since everyone else seemed to want to see this guy so badly. But maybe there was something more. We know Zacchaeus is rich, but he doesn't seem to be very popular. The people deeply resented tax collectors, and they were considered traitors to their own people. And maybe Zacchaeus had a little bit of a Napoleon complex. We can almost see how others may have been deliberately elbowing Zacchaeus out just so he could not see what was happening. But something compelled Zacchaeus forward. My guess is that regardless of his wealth, Zacchaeus was probably a very lonely man. Money is actually very cold comfort without love or friendship in your life. 
The arrival of Jesus seemed to maybe awaken a voice within him that said that getting all you ever wanted may not be what you really wanted. It doesn't bring fulfillment. It just brings emptiness. Well, whatever his reason, Zacchaeus went to great lengths to be able to see Jesus with his own eyes. And he anticipated the direction that Jesus was headed. He ran ahead. He climbed the sycamore tree. And Jesus came to the place under the, tr- under the, place, uh, under the tree where Zacchaeus was. Jesus called him by name and told him to hurry down because he needed to stay at his house today. Now, perhaps Jesus was able to call Zacchaeus by name because as the Son of God, he was able to perceive him. My, uh, my, my guess, however, is that the people in the crowd were laughing at and mocking Zacchaeus, and Jesus overheard his name. Imagine someone who is wealthy and powerful, but despised by everyone, and then you're able to watch this person as he makes a fool of himself by climbing a tree in desperation because he's so short and no one lets him in the front row. Well, Jesus tells Zacchaeus that he's coming to his house today, while servants and couriers and Roman officials and other tax collectors, they may have been in and out Zacchaeus' house all day long. But this was the first time that someone actually wanted to come to his house. Perhaps this was the first person to have been to his house socially in years. Now the crowd, though, now instead of laughing and mocking at Zacchaeus, they started murmuring that Jesus was going to accept hospitality from a hated tax collector who was also a sinner. But before Jesus could speak, Zacchaeus made just the spontaneous declaration. From here on out, he would get half his wealth to the poor, and to anyone he had defrauded, he would pay back fourfold. And that was far more, by the way, than Jewish law required. It seems like just the act of Jesus not rejecting him like everybody else did but rather accepting him and his hospitality was enough to trigger some profound change in Zacchaeus. This leads me to believe that the Spirit of God must already have been at work in Zacchaeus' heart and in his life, preparing him for his meeting with Jesus. Because in the end, when he finally meets Jesus, it only takes a small nudge to get Zacchaeus' heart now in the right place. And we Methodists have a name for this. We call it prevenient grace. Provenient grace is that God-given grace that surrounds all of us and works in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives to prepare us to be able to respond to God's overtures, however those overtures may may come. To Zacchaeus, God's overture came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Jesus seems very impressed, and he declares, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Now we see in Zacchaeus the best and the worst of human nature, both the evil and the good impulse, the part that selfishly wants all of it for himself and the part that then generously wants to give back to others. If you think about it, you and I, we start with such promise. As Michael read in Genesis, our Genesis reading indicates that We human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. And we're created in the image of God. But the thing is, we're also created in another image. There's a story told by Jewish rabbis. I I love this story. 
It's about when God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And so many of us have always asked the question, who, who's God talking to? Was the Lord addressing angels or others who were serving in the heavenly court? Maybe. Some have suggested this is an early reference to the Trinity. But I love what the rabbis or some of these rabbis have said. Instead, they have surmised that when God said, let us make humankind in our image, that God is talking to the animals. Because if you look at the, creation, the text there, animals are the only other living beings that are around. The animals had just been created. So if you think about it, it means that we're created in, God, in the image of God, and we're created in the image of animals. But there's one exception, or one caveat there. We are animals with a God consciousness. Now, we have all the survival instincts of any other animal, and these instincts tell us that the only way to react to threat is fight or flight. These instincts tell us that in this world, it is kill or be killed. If you need or want something, you better just take it. And if you share anything, make sure it's only with individuals who share your gene pool. In other words, people who are just like you. But because we have a God consciousness, we know and can perceive that there's a better way and there's more to life than just survival. We can imagine, imagine through these wonderful brains that God did give us, imagine a better way and imagine that there is more to life than just survival. We even imagine what that better life could look like, what it could be like. But then we also realize that by ourselves, we can't make that imagined life a reality. We may be the most intelligent species on this planet, but we are burdened, as the text also tells us in the next chapter, with the devastating knowledge of good and evil. So we feel stuck, entrapped. We feel fallen. We know what it is we want to do, what we ought to do, but we find ourselves doing the opposite. It's like there's some power within us that's compelling us to do the very thing that we don't want to do. And this impulse causes us to be separated from God, to be separated from each other, and us to be separated from the own core of our own beings. And so we call this separateness, we call it sin. And with sin, sin comes shame and guilt. We feel guilty over specific things that we've either done or left undone. And as a result, we may feel shame and a sense of unworthiness in who we are. As Pogo says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Our sin affects and wounds others, just as the sins of others wound us. Zacchaeus' greed didn't just affect him, it wounded others who then responded with resentment, ostracism, and thoughts of revenge. The author of this book that I read from just a minute ago puts it this way. This is the effect of sin. We absorb cruelty and destructiveness from others and then pass it along like a virus. Sin breeds sin. From the moment of our birth, none of us starts clean. The environment we live in, families, communities, social systems, all scar us for life from the instant that we take our first breath. 
Our potential is restricted by the sins of other people, and others are weakened then by our moral failures. Now, because we all sin, then we all get caught up in these webs of evil systems of communal failure. And from these systems comes war and terrorism and holocausts and homophobia and racism and prejudice and oppression. As the author also says, evil is sin on steroids. And the thing is, we never seem to learn. Just as we conquer one social evil, another takes its place. It's like eating potato chips. We swear that we, we won't eat one more potato chip, but then we do. And we swear we won't let this evil thing happen ever again until it does. Remember that World War I was supposed to be the war that ends all wars? But then along comes Jesus. Now, like any other human being, he also is created in this image of God and of animals. Like any other human being, others have spread the curse of sin and evil upon him. But unlike us, he absorbed it, and then he redeemed it. We may have wounded him physically, but we couldn't wound him spiritually. We threw at Jesus everything we had, all the sin and the evil that we could muster, and he returned only love. You may have heard the saying, the buck stops here, but in Jesus' case, the sin stops here. By not passing on this virus of sin, Jesus broke its power. Sin had met its match, and because we could not spiritually wound him, then even his physical wounds could not prevail against him. And he he defied death itself in resurrection, thereby breaking the power of death itself. You see, we humans couldn't stop that cycle of sin on our own. So God came down to earth to do it for us. And when we surrender our lives to Christ, we then live in Christ. And we'll begin to slowly take on some of Christ's characteristics. And we'll start refusing to pass on the virus of sin. As we go along, we'll pass it a little less often than we did the day before. So then if someone sins against us, we turn the other cheek and we forgive. And we start to be able to absorb some of the sins committed against us, and we therefore do not pass them on to others. And then Christ heals our wounds so we don't have to wound one another. The cross then becomes a symbol of the defeat of sin and death and a sign of the new life that this makes possible. We start with creation and that original primeval garden where the Lord God placed the trees of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of eternal life. It's at a sycamore tree where Zacchaeus meets Jesus and has his life transformed. On Calvary on a dark Friday, we see Jesus hanging from a tree. According to the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, when we get to the new Jerusalem to live with God, the tree of life will be there to heal and sustain us forever. There's an old folktale that has been told in Jericho throughout the centuries. Many years after the tree of Calvary crucified its most famous victim, An old white-haired man always sat under one particular tree. 
and could even occasionally be seen reaching out and just touching the tree in reverence. When finally asked why he always sat under this tree, the old man's eyes brightened and he replied, because it is from the branches of this sycamore tree that I met the Son of God. So, are you where you want to be? Even seasoned Christian disciples, even we can lose our way and need to redirect our lives to Christ. Because I know I'm not where I would like to be in life, but I also know that I'm a lot closer to the mark than I would have been without Christ in my life. All of us have something in our lives that's holding us back. Someone may have wounded us, and we can't seem to forgive or get over it. We may feel guilty for some way in which we have wounded others. And so feelings of shame and unworthiness may prevent us from then fully experiencing the grace of God. But whatever it is, come back to the tree, to the place where the Lord is waiting for all of God's prodigal children to return. Because there we're going to find shelter in the branches and healing in the leaves. And then we'll come to a wonderful ending to our own short story. Amen. Remember that you can always find recordings of our service on our website, tumcd.org, on our Facebook page, or through our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And I haven't said this in a while, but I'll repeat it again. Remember to pray for our church, pray for Trinity, and remember to thank God for three things every day. Now receive this benediction. May you meet Christ on whatever road you travel. And may Christ stay at your house now and forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. Join us for the message, What Happens When I Die? You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.